Welcome to the fifth episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today we have not one, but two incredible guests for you. Our first guest is Carlos Goffey, the longtime tennis coach of the great John McEnroe. He's also the author of the book Tournament Tough and has coached thousands of junior players over the past 40 years in his Nike tennis camps. We're also joined by his son, Josh Goffey, the current head coach at the University of South Carolina. Josh has been instrumental in making the Gamecocks a perennial top 20 national team and coached Paul Jubb to an individual NCAA title in 2019. Today, we're going to discuss what you should be thinking about in between the points, how a traffic light analogy can help your tennis strategy, and what the role of a tennis parent should be. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Carlos, welcome to the pod. It's my pleasure, uh, Jonathan, to be here with you and Josh. Thank you very much for the invite. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's fantastic to have you on the show. You know, you've had an amazing coaching career. Obviously, you know, you're famous for coaching both John and Patrick McEnroe. But you're also well known amongst coaches for all the philosophies and methods that you wrote down in your book, Tournament Tough. Can you give a brief history of how you came up with your coaching philosophy and methodologies? So uh, the uh, methodology, in summary, uh, was developed during the, my very first tennis lesson. After I played college tennis and played some eight months in Europe back in 1974, I decided to uh, get back to the United States and, uh, and decided to put some roots in the United States and start a family. So I called my old mentor, Mr. Harry Hopman, and uh, asked him for a job. Uh, at that time, he was at uh, Port Washington Tennis Academy. And he says, um, yes, come on back and come in and work with the kids here. And while I was up there, uh, my very first lesson with four teenagers on my court, basically John was one of those four teenagers. And um, that very first lesson, he actually taught me how to coach because I threw a couple of lobs for each one of those players. And uh, and I said, let's just uh, do a, a, a random 10 lobs for each one of you guys and let's see who's got the best overhead on the court. And uh, by the time Mac came up, I tossed him the first one, he made it. The second one, he made it. The third one, he says, look, I'm sitting out until the end of the, until the, end of the drill. And I said, why? He says, well, when do we ever hit more than two overheads in a row, you know, in a tennis match? So I realized that um, what Mac was saying is that, you know, uh, my competitive maturity goes beyond just drilling, you know, strokes here. Let's just uh, do what goes on in a match. And then everything else sort of started developing from there. And I think what the the main fundamental of the of the methodology is really the root of a tennis match. You know that uh, the ball is in play only about ten minutes out of every hour. So what happens during the other fifteen minutes when the ball is not in play? You know, and, and then as we all know, tennis players, that's where you really win or lose matches, isn't it? You know, is how do you play those fifteen minutes when you're not hitting the ball? So from there. Uh, I decided to start uh, building upon what goes on in between points and during changeovers, during those 15 minutes. How does a top player think in those uh, minutes that you're not hitting the ball? And then I start realizing 
you know, that they needed to have some kind of uh, uh, immediate tactical and strategical thinking. Otherwise, as we all know, particularly in the junior years, you know, you always think about the last point almost through the entire 25 seconds. And that's really how the methodology got started. So if the time between points is critical to winning a match, what should a player be thinking about and doing during that time period? Well, um, the first thing that you need to learn is how to basically disconnect your reaction to the last point. And I have a, a three-second rule, you know, that your reaction, your emotional reaction to the last point, whether it is positive or negative, should not last more than three seconds out of those 25 seconds. And uh, the key to get out of that uh, reaction to the last point, it's really a quick question, you know, how does the point affect my opponent across the net? So the opponent can be affected from the last point uh, in three ways. Uh, the opponent can be confident. The opponent can be sort of neutral. The, the last point that really affect their confidence. Or they can be frustrated. So I think that that's uh, the key on that fourth second after the point ended to get you out of thinking about yourself and about the last point. The, the answer would become, come very quickly in the fifth second if he is confident, neutral, or frustrated. And then immediately after that, you use that information with the score so that you can start preparing for your tactical move with the best odds for the next point. You just mentioned the three ways that your opponent can react to a point. But how do you observe that? Is it based on the result of the last point, their body language? How do you gauge how your opponent is doing on the other side of the net? I normally say, uh, Jonathan, that uh, you should really have your, your thumb, you know, on the opponent's pulse all the time. You got to feel that opponent all the time that you're playing. And if you, for a moment, you take your finger off their pulse, you basically lost control of that opposition. And I think that that's the most important part of competing, isn't it? Is to be in control of the opposition. And, uh, and when you look at matches throughout history, the great players... They seem to always keep the opponent from getting too confident, you know, across the net. So they feel the opponent at all the times. And I see a lot of juniors, as you do, that uh, they don't even know that the guy, you know, across the net twisted his ankle, you know, in between during the last point, or they don't they don't pay attention to the uh, to what's going on across the net. So I think that's the basics of competing: is basically understanding that it's just not about you. It's really about the opposition, isn't it? That's, that's really what com competing is about. You've briefly touched on a point system and choosing strategy and tactics based on the score and the mindset of your opponent. You're famous for coming up with the traffic light analogy for choosing your tactics. Can you elaborate on that analogy and how it plays into what we've been discussing today? Absolutely. And uh, this really came about in the very early years of developing this methodology, as I, as I was saying in the beginning of my, my coaching career at Port Washington, you know, just uh, basically seeing the way that McEnroe competed, you know, at 14, 15 years old, 15, you know, it was incredible. It was very unorthodox the way he practiced, uh, was very unorthodox the way that he looked at uh, technique. For those that do not know, you know, uh, Mac has one grip that doesn't have a name, you know, it's somewhere between a uh, Eastern forehand and a continental grip. And uh, with that one grip, basically he does his magic, you know, and he did it pretty well. Uh, 
And I remember as a rookie coach, you know, telling him when he was 15 to say, Mac, you're going to have to turn this grip a little bit more over to an Eastern forehand so you can whip that forehand a little more instead of pushing it flat. And how are you going to be able to pass anybody off your backhand with that sort of a semi-Eastern continental? I mean, you won't be able to roll that backhand. And, you know, and the way he looked at it when he was 15 years old, he says, nah, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Like he wasn't even thinking about a grip. He wasn't even thinking about the strokes. You know, he just, his whole way of looking at a game when he was a young kid was that, look, if I don't have a glaring weakness that the opponent can just prey on, I'm not a solid player. You know, that's all he matters because, you know, I'll tear him apart with my, with my mind, basically. And that's what he did. And so his ability to be able to play those 15 minutes just struck me really, you know, made me realize that, wait a minute, you know, he is not even thinking about improving forehands and backhands. He's, he is happy that it, he doesn't have a glaring weaknesses on his strokes. So um, he always was so aware of the guy across the net, how the, the guy was reacting to the last point, And he basically used that to his advantage and had um, just a natural feel for the situation of the match and in, in choosing his um, uh, shot selections. Because after all, you know, your shot selections communicate your tennis IQ to the opposition and conversely, you know, the opponent's selections communicate their IQ to you. So I saw Denny Mack and all the kids just did not have that. I never had that when I was a junior at that age. So immediately I decided, okay, what can I do to uh, basically uh, bring this to other kids and have them be aware of that whole tactical game that is played when the ball is not in play? And from my days in college, I, I have a, um, a degree in psychology. And um, I remember one thing at that point, that the best way to teach kids is really through analogy. You know, if you try to really try to talk too much theory to a kid, you lose a, a kid's attention. But if you make an analogy, it sort of sticks, you know, with kids, um, uh, the message that you want to, to convey. So I figured, okay, I divided the game into half. From 30 all up from the beginning of the game, the front half of the game up to 30 all, I call that the yellow points, you know, the cautionary time of the game that you're trying to get ahead. From 30 all to the end of the game, the bottom half of the game, I call it the red points. And then when you're up by two points or more, I call it the green points. Uh, the whole idea was to uh, be able to give these kids a, a, an immediate sort of a, a vision of what the situation was at any point in the match. Because we all know that you, you can be out there at three o'clock PM in the summer and it's three all in the third and, and, and it's 1530. And you just don't even know what to do at that point. And you just might just go for a, a huge shot, uh, a winner at 1530 that could have cost the entire match just because you did not make the right shot selection. So um, with those three lights, three colors, you know, I could see that the kid could actually grasp one of the three at any moment, no matter how tired they were in the middle of the match or no matter, no matter how tight they were in the middle of the match. And uh, the, um, the, the strategy behind these, uh, these lights was that when you were in the yellow lights, trying to get ahead in the beginning of the game before 30-all, you always played the next to the last shot 
You never play the last shot of the point. You just keep forcing, forcing, forcing the opponent to try to draw an error from the opposition. When you are in a green situation, up by two points or more, 30 love, 40 love, 45, you can go for the last shot of the, um, of the point. Either hit a winner or you know, make an enforced error because you still have one or a couple of, or a couple of other points to, to win the, the game. Convert, but the interesting part about the green light, though, is that it also works when you're down by two points or more because you can anticipate what's coming. If the opponent has got a green light, you know he's going to tee off for a winner. So, you, you know, uh, you've got to step up and, 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 and basically uh, uh, take that away from the opposition. And then the red lights from 30 all to the end of the game, you know, that's, that's really the most important part of the um, uh, of tactics, you know, how to play. You know, great players are great red ball players, as I always said. So what would be then the strategy in those situations? Just like the yellow points in the beginning of the game, you're playing the next to the last shot, but now you actually add margin for error. So what is margin for error? Obviously, you know, height of the net, a little bit more spin on the ball, uh, big targets, stay away from the lines, you know, aim three feet inside the inside of the court. Uh, when you're serving at a red uh, point, you know, don't try to go for a big serve, you know, in the back of the line. You know, I often say to kids, uh, you know, if you're playing a big red point, just get that first serve, nice three-quarter first serve in the middle of the box. You know, that can do more damage than you trying to go for a big serve and miss it and then have to push a second serve up there. And while we are at this uh, in the subject of serving, you know, um, as you well know, Jonathan, you know, I believe that the most important shot in the game of tennis is the second serve. So we've spent the entire podcast so far basically talking about tactics, emotional management, handling yourself between the points. Juniors obviously have to improve in this area, but they also have to focus on technique, stroke production, fitness, and many other things. At what point in their development should they start to focus on what we've been discussing today? I just, my my philosophy is that, uh, you know, uh, there are two two basic phases of uh, junior tennis development, right? Pre-adolescent and then post-adolescent, right? That happens around... 13 and 14 years old, depending on girls and, and boys and some, some, some matured a little earlier than others. But, but let's say 13, 14 years old, it's a, it's a crossroads in junior tennis development. So up until that point, you know, the, the junior tennis player really needs to be developing his athleticism or her athleticism and learning the fundamentals of Stroking the ball, all the different types of uh, of shots that you can that you can hit with a with a tennis racket, and and um, and 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 I prescribe the same thing that McEnroe prescribed the way back when. No glaring weakness. I mean, you know, it doesn't do any good to just for a kid to thirteen years old, uh, 12, 13 years old, says, "Well, I have a huge forehand," you know, but you know, he can't he cannot do anything with his backhand. That's going to be sort of a flat tire, you know, as you try to compete because, you know, you, you basically uh, are, are, are asking, you know, for the opposition to just prey on that weakness. So the first thing on that first phase is to be able to develop a game without the glaring weakness and then also develop the athleticism to move around, on the, you know, on the tennis court. But, but it com- 
competing at that stage, it's really counterproduction productive, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. And I think that's the main mistakes that a lot of tennis parents that do not understand the game make, going after rankings, you know, in the tens and twelves, and 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 thinking that uh, you know their little kid because he's twelve years old, you know, can be the next Johnny Mac or the next uh, you know Roger Federer or or Naomi Osaka of the world, you know, no, you know, the game that we play pre-adolescent has nothing to do with the game that we play, you know, post-adolescence when the kid has got some sort of a emotional identity, physical identity, uh, personal identity, and, and then he or she can cover the court a little better, is stronger physically to be able to serve better and cover the net, cover overheads. So, uh, I normally say that, uh, you know, winning in the 10s and 12s means that you're losing less. You're not winning. You're losing less by keeping the ball in play. And that's the game that you do not need to have when you're going post-adolescent, as we all know. Post-adolescence, you got to win the match because of your strengths in control, you know, your gifts, your unforced errors. Now, one thing that I find that um, the TV, the analytics of that you see on TV, the stats that you see on TV are missing, uh, that is a critical uh, item for a developing junior, is the number of forcing shots. They, um, you know, they will show you the number of unforced errors and they show the number of uh, winners. But for a developing junior, what the, the, the most basic a shot to learn is a shot that forces the opponent out of balance. That's a forcing shot. Even if he doesn't create an error with that shot, normally creates a defensive shot with an open court. So a lot of the winners that we see are actually, you know, uh, preceded by good forcing shots. And we don't have that statistics shown on TV or in a lot of the apps that you have today. And I think that's a mistake because kids need to learn how to force opponents. Granted, it is a subjective uh, type of a call by the charter, but it's based on a very solid premise, you know, is basically taking the opponent out of balance. So um, I um, I'm really uh, believe that that's the most very important for coaching uh, today um, to 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 emphasize what is a forcing shot, and you have to use those forcing shots. So back to those light systems, as you saw, you know, y- y- basically you're only allowed under my light system to go for a winner is when you are in a green situation, up by two points or more, or down by two points or more. The rest of the time, during the yellow points, which is the front half of the game, you're going for forcing, which is the next to the last shot of the point. And then when you are in the red situation, you're still going for the forcing shots, the next to the last shot of the, of the point, but you increase the margins. So that shot is not being charted or is not being part of the statistics. And I think that that's, that's a fallacy of today's, um, uh, today's statistics. You briefly mentioned a few minutes ago about one of the mistakes that parents make with their children. And we've discussed in previous podcasts about how sometimes these mistakes can lead to junior players that compete with fear because they're trying to please their parents. What do you think the role of a parent should be in the junior tennis development pathway? Yeah, well, that's a that's an extremely important question. And I think that that's an extremely important area that coaching Today, in a lot of the junior development programs, 
maybe all, maybe most of the junior development programs, they do not integrate the parents. And that's a <laughs> that's like you know, rowing against the tide, because no matter how you much you work with that junior on a tennis court, you know, that kid's going to go back home. And if that input, you know, from from his parents and and from his from his um, supporting system, which also includes the friends, by the way, is not balanced, you know, no matter how good of a job you as a coach can do on the court for that kid, the moment he goes back to the other two parts of that supporting system, parents and, and his friends or her friends, and if they're not balanced, they don't know their roles for, you know, to support that junior tennis player, that junior tennis player is never going to reach their potential as, you know, uh, as a tennis player. So the role for a parent uh, of a junior tennis player is uh, extremely important and is not really coached. There is no manual. Uh, there is nothing that they can read about it. They just often hear people criticize, you know, oh, gosh, that's another tennis parent. Oh, the tennis parents. You know, we hear a lot of these horror stories about tennis parents, but there are a lot of them that want to do the right job, but they just don't know what to do. So I think that it's very important for junior programs, junior development programs to include coaching parents, not just coaching their kids. Now, answering your question, what would be the appropriate role for a parent? Okay, yeah, the parent is the cab driver, the taxi, and he's also the bank. Yes, no doubt about it. But the parent makes a lot of mistakes. Parents that do not know, they, can, they even though they're trying to do the very best, obviously every parent wants to do the very best they can to their, for their kids, but they sometimes get so involved that well, you have the two different parents, right? One that is the non-engaging parent is just drop the kids off in a club or, you know, and then comes over and pick them up and, and doesn't care. And then a the majority of them, they do care and they do want to participate. They do want to help their junior in their endeavors as a junior tennis player, but they get too involved and put additional pressure. So I've got a few uh, rules here, you know, uh, when I deal with parents, you know, the number one rule is, is, is simple. No tennis talking for two hours after a tennis match. No tennis talking. I mean, match is over, win or lose, you know, emotions run high. And uh, if you start talking about the match, the moment the kid walks into the minivan, you know, you're going to be saying things that you will regret later. Then uh, the second rule is lately, uh, particularly lately, not in my days, but now lately, as I say, entourage, right? You see players with the physio, with the, you know, the mental coach, the technical coach, the guy that holds his bags. I mean, it's just a, it, it, it's just a circus right now. I mean, so many people involved in this kid's uh, entourage that, you know, parents now these days would say, well, we are playing, you know, at five o'clock p.m. And I just cut them right there and said, wait, 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 wait. No, not we are not playing. OK, your child is playing at five o'clock this afternoon. So those, you know, you got to be very careful about using words uh, like that. Oh, you know, uh, the parents do go, you know, watch their kids. And somehow they sit right next to the tennis court or they sit right behind the tennis court, you know, and just a perfect distraction for the kid because the kid's out there in the middle of the match and he's watching their parent, you know, every time he serves, every time he's just re returning serve and, and watching the facial expressions of your parents. That's the last thing that the kid needs while he's trying to figure it out how to win a tennis match out there on his own. 
So, so um, you know, the best place for a parent to be watching a kid play is on top of the bleachers and, and just not distracting your kid. Let him do his thing or hard thing down there. Let him work through those adversity moments and, and figure it out on, on their own on how to go about it. So how do you contribute to your uh, junior? Certainly not by, you know, being a, a distraction, but perhaps by videotaping the match, charting the match so that uh, you can share that video with the uh, coach and uh, or even with your own son or daughter, but certainly not within two hours after the match. But then you have something that is tangible, t- something that is objective, rather than, you know, most of the parents, you know, are giving their opinion to their kids after a match, but it's a subjective opinion, and that's not going anywhere. Just the individuality of our sport makes the game require uh, self-reliance from the player. Uh, as you know, Jonathan, if a kid is not self-reliant, you know, from an early age, that that's his own game. He owns that game because it's his game or her game. And, and he's not playing just to please their parents, but he's playing because he or she wants to become the best player they can be. You know, uh, it's not going to work because, you know, that kid doesn't, doesn't, he won't be able to learn. He won't be able to figure it out what to do, you know, in a 30, 40, you know, point. So. All right, Carlos, let's take a quick break and we're going to welcome your son, Josh, to the show. All right. So we are welcoming Josh to the show. And Carlos, this is, uh, this is something you don't know, but when we used to be out recruiting, I would just track your son down. I would figure out who he was looking at. And I would show up at the match, sit right down next to him, and I would just ask him as many questions as I could about tennis, philosophy, life, and I would just soak in his knowledge. And kind of one of the funny things I learned is, you know, I always had candy on me. I, I love candy. And I quickly learned that your son might love it just as much as I do. <laughs> And so, you know, I would come sit next to him, you know, he'd ask me for a gummy bear. He'd always say, you know, I I know you got something on you. And what started to happen was instead of me having to track your son down, he was tracking me down to get some candy. And while he was there, I would ask my questions and get smarter. So yeah, we had some amazing conversations out there. Yeah, we, we had, we had some amazing conversations and, uh, you know, I, I treasure those conversations, um, a ton, but you know, Josh, your father and I have been discussing, you know, the role of a tennis parent. And what I want to know from you is what it was like for you growing up, because your tennis parent was a world famous tennis coach. <laughs> well, it was, well, that comes with some pressure, you know, to be honest, it's, um, but he didn't, he saw that coming and, and did everything possible to keep me away from the game as long as possible until, until the moment where I basically got on my knees and begged to actually play. You know, it was, I, I grew up in a tennis camp since I was five. I had been around my father and, and, and his teachings. He had no idea what he was talking about, but I could pretty much recite pretty much anything that was going to come out of his mouth. And I was just around the camp watching tennis, the whole deal, but I was a full-time soccer player practicing multiple times a week, going to all the different camps and, and national clinics and so on and so forth. By design, and, may I add. 
Absolutely, by design. You know, <laughs> looking back on it, it was genius because you know all, we had all these. You know, I had Mac and and Pat and these guys would come to the house and you know, Josh, when are you going to start picking up the racket, man? When are you going to play? When are you going to start playing ball? And and my dad would quickly interject. I'd be like, Yeah, I really want you know. And then he quickly interject and say, He's you look, he's 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 a hell of a soccer player, man. You know, he's he's more into soccer right now. And I'd just be like, Yeah, I guess I'm into soccer. And uh, sure enough, it, it it kind of grew, but. You know, here's another tip that my father did that was amazing that having there are a lot of kids out there that have parents as their coaches. And that is one of the trickiest things to to grow up under, because no matter what, you know, as a kid, you, you want to please your, your parents at all costs. Right. And when there is coaching involved and there is something that is critical, even if it's ne- necessary criticism, not in a negative way, it's just, hey, we need to talk about the match or, hey, we need to get your forehand here or this and that. It's hard for a kid to separate father and, co- and, and coach. And so we lived by that two-hour rule. Like, absolutely, there was, it was no budging on it. And sometimes it wasn't even, it was just till the next day or even after the tournament we would talk. You know, it, the only thing my father was able that he said, he's like, the only thing that I can judge you within two hours after the match is your effort level and your engagement level on the, from that match. That's, that's what I have control over because this is a privilege that we're giving you to play this sport. And if that is violated, then we're, then there will be consequences. But as a coach, we're, just, we're not talking for another couple hours. And so, but he also prefaced it very clearly when we would speak is, Hey, big man, you know, heck of a match, you know, really proud of you. He'd always put his arm around me regardless, you know, and that's, I knew that was coming if I gave it my all out there, which is ultimately what I wanted. But at the end, he'd be like, hey, man, you know, there's a few things. We'll talk in a couple hours. Let's go grab, you know, go grab a bite to eat. Let's get a shower. And then and then when everybody's chilled out and relaxed, that's when coach would come out. But it was, hey, look, man, you did this really great. You know, this was awesome. This is an area that, that needs to tighten up a little bit for tomorrow, you know, and why don't we get up in the morning and hit some balls and go work on that or whatever. And so it was it was very relaxed, very much a, you know, dealing with me. We didn't travel to a lot of tournaments. The game and the mindset was always, you know, your best tennis is going to come at 25, 26 years old. And that's that's the way that you're going to be brought up. And early on, there was some heartbreak that went along with that because, you know, understanding the competitive side or, or just having matches under my belt really wasn't there. But I'm telling you right now, it, it when other kids were starting to get stale with their development, meaning that they've been doing it as a job for a very long time, around 17, 18, I was just starting to hit my stride and get hungrier to get better. And so a lot of the philosophies here, you know, I was brought up with and really have then filtered the way that I see the game uh, going through that development process and then going out and, and putting it to test out on tour and, and then coming back and getting into the, the front lines with all of us as coaches. And it's, it's been such a, a privilege to grow up in his household there and I, with him as my coach. But really, it, it's, it's allowed me to, to see the game and, and really build upon the philosophies there. So those simple rules that, that he gave, they seem so simple, but they're hard as can be. Because when parents have emotions tied in, and I am a current parent of an athlete, and it is tough. I mean, he did a heck of a job, and I, I empathize for parents, tennis parents out there, because when your heart is attached and all you want is the best for that your kid, 
you know, it's tough to get out of their way and let them make the mistakes and learn from those mistakes and, and really create that, that self-reliance, which ultimately is going to allow, you know, that motivation to just burn deep inside of them. If parents do things for them, it's an immediate payoff. It, they may get the immediate bump in the ranking and the kid might be happy. The mom and dad might be happy, but ultimately there's going to be a disaster down the road because it's not the kid's game. It's not, there's no ownership involved. So just word of advice, be very careful and, and play the long game. Josh, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, you're currently the head men's tennis coach at South Carolina. So you see top level American and international junior tennis players come into your program every year. Do you still consistently coach those players on the other 50 minutes of a tennis match? Absolutely. Yeah. I actually just spoke about it in practice today. <laughs> um, we live by that philosophy, you know, um, you know, and we actually spoke quite a bit today about using the time in between points, very, very similar to the things being spoken right now. So all of this is, has been developed, you know, I grew up in it, but the theory here is, is absolutely relevant today. And it, it's even maybe even more relevant today. Uh, in my, in my coaching world, I talk about it daily. You know, we work on the physical side, the technical side, but, but the main component of what I do on a daily basis as a coach is try to get these guys to get their competitive maturity advanced daily, you know, and it's, it's tough initially. Um, I've had kids come up to me and just because we've made them aware that there, there's certain points in a match that, that cost or, or, are worth a little bit more than others. They, they immediately now feel pressure in those moments, which is, which is okay, but they, they don't necessarily like it. They liked playing free and carefree and careless. And, and that's kind of the way we talk about it is, you know, you want to be carefree, but ultimately what we see is a very careless player out there. You know, uh, Jonathan, um, if I may inter interject here, because I think uh, Josh made a very interesting point there about um, the different different size of points in tennis. Look, uh, for those that believe that uh, you should play every point the same and, you know, because they're all points, you know, all the points in tennis are worth the same. I've got news for that person that thinks that way. Number one, you know, our sport is one of the few sports that you can actually win a match by winning less points. Okay. So let's just make sure that we don't forget that. And then number two, let's don't forget that we get tighter in certain points that we, than, than, than we do in others. That shows that you know, the, 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 all the points are not the same in our game. If you can win the right points in our game, you win a match. If you, but in order to win the right points in the, in, in, of the match, you gotta identify those points. You know, where, what are those big points? When are those big points? And those big points coincide with momentum swings in our game. So the big points are the momentum swings. Once you play those big points the way you need to play, you know, you then can carry that momentum and it's worth another two or three games for you. And this is what the great competitors of our game and throughout the history have done. If you looked at people like Rod Laver, you know, or, or Kenny Roseville, or, you know, like I used to watch him all the time, you know, in my teenager years. And, and then here when I was in college in the United States, I mean, the rocket was my 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 hero at that point, and if you watch the you know the rocket play, I mean he knew you know exactly what points that he needed to step up and win in order to be able to carry the momentum. And then the other thing that I think we also see on great players is that um, um, you know they don't allow the opposition to get three points in a row 
as I call it, a confident point, you know? So, I mean, let's assume that the uh, opposition just, um, you know, hit an ace. Okay, boom. You know, that's one. Guy's confident. The next point, the guy goes out and hits a winner. That's two points in a row of confidence points. A good competitor will not allow that player get a third point that he can build that confidence because he knows that from three confidence points in a row, that's going to, that's going to run into three, three games, you know, with the, with the momentum. So good, good, good competitors in our game, you know, they know that the guy can hit an ace and they know that the guy can even hit a winner after that. But believe me, they will step up and they'll hit a winner and say, Oh, you know, cool it, cool it because I'm in control of the mood of this match. I'm in control of your of your competitiveness right now because I I every time that you are beginning to build any you know your momentum or confidence, I'm shutting you out. Take a look at what happened in 1984, you know, McEnroe Connors in the finals of the of Wimbledon on center court. I mean, Mac just destroyed Jimbo two, two and two or you know, or something of that sort. I don't remember exactly the score. But, I mean, if you watch that match, you know, uh, every single time that uh, Jimbo had back on a 5.30 and he was beginning to feel like, well, maybe this is the time that I can break him. You know, Mac would come in with an unreturnable, an ace, and then a put-away winner to just, like, squash Jimbo's confidence straight back down. Complete control of the opposition from first point to the last point. That's a competitor in tennis. So maybe at this point, the listener out there has a good idea why I used to track down Josh all those years when we were recruiting. Uh, I could listen to you two guys talk about tennis theory all day long, and I'm sure many out there could as well. The good news for them is that you guys are coming out with an online platform, also named Tournament Tough, uh, that will have Carlos's teachings and philosophies that can be shared with junior tennis players and parents today. Uh, you've allowed me to see the videos and the instruction, and it's phenomenal. I already learned a ton, uh, and I'm so excited that you guys are putting it out there and that it will be available and that maybe some some junior tennis players and parents can benefit from that knowledge. So thank you guys again for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, Josh, for joining us as well. Awesome, man. been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. All right, I want to thank Carlos and Josh for joining me today. My biggest takeaway was the emphasis on what Carlos refers to as the other 50 minutes in a tennis match. What you think about in between points is what competing is all about. Make sure you limit your emotional reaction to three seconds and then move on to planning your next point. Your opponent's mindset should play a role in your upcoming strategy, so pay attention to what's going on the other side of the net to gain a tactical advantage over your competitors. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.